Hello and welcome to Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime. We're your hosts, Jill, Craig, Dave, Gohan, and Steve, and... who's still awake. <laughs> Steve so far, so good. Passed out yet on the table. <laughs> that was too bad. <laughs> you might be developing a problem. <laughs> it was not hungover. <laughs> It was not. <laughs> Shooting heroin right before you came in? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Kirsch is off this weekend again. Um, so for the drink of the week, I will cover it. Um, we're not as good as I think Gracia is about coming up with drinks of the week. So this one I did, um, I like to just think of it as an easy, easy drink. It's good to be as a mocktail or a cocktail. It's just um, lemonade lime seltzer and vodka um, it's pretty early in the morning so i didn't put any vodka in it but and what do you call this drink just call it the easy drink <laughs> i made one for craig the other night so i'm easy yep <laughs> so that was it so with that dad are you ready for your story i guess i am this to cheer everybody up really it's uplifting <laughs> George Sandy Jr. was 14 years old when he was executed in South Carolina in 1944. It took 10 minutes to convict him and 70 years to exonerate him. On June 16, 1944, he was executed, becoming the youngest person in modern times to be put to death. He was executed in the Deep South in 1944 in the midst of the Jim Crow era. George Stinney Jr. lived in the segregated mill town of Alcolu. I actually had to have that pronounced for me on the internet this morning. Alcolu, <coughs> South Carolina, where white people and black people were separated by railroad tracks. Stinney's family lived in a humble company house until they were forced to leave when the young boy was accused of killing two white girls. Two young white girls have been found brutally murdered, beaten over the head with what initially appeared to be a railroad spike and dumped in a waterlogged ditch. George and his little sister, both black, were said to be the last ones to see them alive. In March of 1944, Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, 11 and 7 respectively, were riding their bicycles in Alcolu looking for flowers when they saw Stinney and his younger sister, Amy, during their journey. They stopped and asked if they knew where to find Maypops, the yellow edible fruit of passion flowers, I guess. I know nothing about flowers. That was the last time, reportedly, that the girls were seen alive. When they got this information, the police came for 14-year-old George Stinney Jr. His parents weren't at home at the time. His little sister was hiding in the family's chicken coop. While officers handcuffed George and his older brother Johnny and took them away, authorities later released the older Stinney and directed their attention toward George. George Stinney Jr. was interrogated for hours in a small room without his parents without an attorney or any witnesses. Police claim that Stinney confessed to murdering Binnaker and Thames 
after his plan to have sex with one of the girls failed. An officer named H.S. Newman wrote in a handwritten statement, I arrested a boy by the name of George Stinney. He then made a confession and told me where to find a piece of iron about 15 inches long. He said he had put it in a ditch about six feet from the bicycle. It turned out that the murder weapon was actually much larger. About a month after the girl's death, George Stinney Jr.'s trial began at Clarendon County Courthouse. Court-appointed attorney Charles Plowden did little to nothing to defend his client. By the time of his trial, Stinney hadn't seen his parents in weeks, and they were too afraid of getting attacked by a white mob to come to the courthouse. So the 14-year-old was surrounded by strangers, up to 1,500 of them, all white. Following a deliberation that took less than 10 minutes, the all-white jury found Stinney guilty of murder with no recommendation for mercy. On April 24, 1944, the teen was sentenced to die by electrocution. <clears throat> how is this travesty possible? To appreciate how and to have the full context of George Stinney's world, you need to understand what the historical period of Jim Crow is like. You see, George was very much baked into that American system. According to Ferris State University's Jim Crow Museum, Jim Crow was the name of the racial caste system which operated primarily, but not exclusively, in southern and border states between 1877 and the mid-1960s. I'm old enough to have seen it in the mid-1960s. It was more than a series of rigid anti-black laws. It was a way of life. Under Jim Crow, African Americans were relegated to the status of second-class citizens. Jim Crow represented the legitimization of anti-black racism. Many Christian ministers and theologians taught that whites were the chosen people. Blacks were cursed to be servants, and God supported racial segregation. Craniologists, eugenicists, phrenologists, and social Darwinists at every educational level buttressed this belief that blacks were innately, intellectually, and culturally inferior to whites. Pro-segregation politicians gave eloquent speeches on the great danger of integration the mongrelization of the white race. Newspaper and magazine writers routinely referred to blacks as niggers, coons, and darkies, and worse. Their articles reinforced anti-black stereotypes. Even children's games portrayed blacks as an inferior being. The Jim Crow system was underpinned by the following beliefs or rationalizations. Whites are superior to blacks, as I've said, in all important ways, including but not limited to intelligence, morality, and civilized behavior. Sexual relations between blacks and whites would produce a mongrel race, which would destroy America. Treating blacks as equals would encourage interracial sexual unions. Any activity which suggested social equality encouraged interracial sexual relations. These people were really 
Anyway, if necessary, violence must be used to keep the blacks at the bottom of the racial. Hang on. So blacks were inferior morally and more prone to violence, so violence was required to keep them down, right? <laughs> exactly. That's logic. Very good. Yeah, no, right. it's true. I have one other quick question before you go on. The jury did apparently deliberate for close to 10 minutes, but less than 10 minutes. What was the deliberation? Was it like, is that kid black? I don't know. Maybe he is black. Was he black? I'm not sure. Was he black? Oh, he's black. Let's convict him. Or was there more to it? Do we no, get there lunch? wasn't much more to it. I mean, mm -hmm. down in South Carolina especially, it would be that would be really all they would care about. I mean, no, it was, they were deliberating more on uh, what kind of coffee to get. And stuff, so. Well, I mean, if it's 10 minutes, it does take time to walk out of the courtroom mm -hmm. into the oh, jury that's room. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, get the get judge's instructions. Yeah, and then the judge's walk back. instructions are like, you should have noticed that he was black. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Fuck you, 1940s South Carolina. <laughs> Got to remember where the Civil War started—the military action Civil War. Yeah, that was in South Carolina. South Carolina. In fact, they're the ones that um, they're. Fired on uh, Fort Sumter. Right? Yeah, and they wrote the um, uh, South Carolina uh, Articles of Secession, I believe. That's mm -hmm. right. That's where they basically... So anybody who ever tells you the South did not secede from slavery, just refer them to that. Yes. Because it, it actually spells it out quite clearly. That's why the South seceded. Yeah. And so. that is, that's very true. And, and they weren't the only ones who made it very clear and explicit yeah. at that time. And, you know, if you, if you study the American history, the pre-Civil War period, there was constant fighting going on between the, the major political parties at the time as to whether or not to allow states that were coming into the Union mm -hmm. uh, to be slavery-free. Yeah, bleeding Kansas. Uh, you to remember that, uh, what, what was the slave worth? Three quarters of a person? Yeah. In representation terms. So if you wanted seats in the House of Representatives or, or whatever, um, they were important. They were also the economy of the South. They yeah. And built from, the South's economy. From was the year... Like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, 1850 to the year 1860... Um, there were policies put in place that stopped you from getting new slaves um, from the north. And so the price of a slave went to, if you took the equivalent to nowadays, it went from about the price of a TV to the price of a car in about a decade. Wow. Um, and that's really what was precipitating the southern, mm -hmm. you know, um, civil war. Because they realized, you know... The North wasn't necessarily going to ban slavery per se. No, Lincoln they were going. Have. They were going to make it so expensive that you couldn't do it. Interesting. Um, and that was what the South basically feared, and that was probably true. I mean, they made, they basically said you couldn't be born into slavery, you couldn't purchase new slaves. So they were basically making it so the supply of slavery was reduced. Um, and then, of course, you had the Supreme Court ruling um, uh, in Dred Scott. Dred Scott, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Where they basically, because Wisconsin had basically, uh, or maybe it was Michigan, I can't remember which state, they basically passed a law that said any slave who steps foot on this soil is a free person. Oh, nice. Kind of using that whole state's rights against, mm -hmm. um, against the South. Um, 
Uh, but of course, in Dred Scott, they said, "Well, you can't. Yeah, a black person can't be a free person. No, basically. he cannot. Yeah, it's not equal to whites." And um, yeah. so, and then you had, um, of course, uh, uh, John. Um, uh, what was his name? Brown. John Brown's uprising, and you mm. know, that was definitely. Uh, you know, when people say we're really divided now, they should have seen it back then. <laughs> yeah. You ain't seen nothing. <laughs> there was there was even a, an attack, and of course, uh, Massachusetts congressman was attacked in yeah, Congress with so. a cane. Sumner. Yeah, Sumner. Yeah. yeah. So when they, you they go beat him with a cane tunnel, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah those were the times. <clears throat> okay, so let's take a quick look. Oh, at... Greg was going to say something, too. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to ask, a few minutes ago you were about to talk about the three-fifths compromise, I think, uh, when you were saying there were three-quarters of a person, right? Is that what you were referring to? Yes. Because oh, uh, I wasn't clear what that was, so I was just going to ask you. Like, I yeah. thought that was where they each black person in the South counted as three-fifths of a person for voting What's purposes. What's it, three-fifths? But I'm not sure, but for it voting was for... purposes, but... Their owners were the ones who got to throw their votes, right? right? They didn't yeah. vote. Oh, no, no, yeah. no, no. The slaves did not vote. It was against the law to eat in, during slavery to even teach them how to read or write or anything like that. Uh, no, no, no. No, um, but as far as representation in the House of Representatives, the Senate, and what have you, they wanted their slaves counted as near people. They got their wish. Okay, let's look at some of these norms. And again, I'm trying to build the context here of why these people would do this to a 14-year-old boy. Um, the times of Jim Crow. So let's look at some of the etiquette norms at the time, right? A black male could not offer his hand to shake hands with a white male because it implied being socially equal. Obviously, a black male could not offer his hand or any other part of his body to a white woman because he risked being accused of rape. Blacks and whites were not supposed to eat together. If they did eat together, whites were to be served first and some sort of partition was to be placed between them. So that was COVID back then. Huh? Say again? <laughs> yeah. He was wondering if it was COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Under Sorry. no circumstance was a black male to offer to light the cigarette of a white female. That gesture implied intimacy. Blacks were not allowed to show public affection toward one another in public, especially kissing, <coughs> because it offended whites. Jim Crow etiquette prescribed that blacks were introduced to whites, never whites to blacks. For example, Mr. Peters, the white person, this is Charlie, the black person, that I spoke to you about. Whites did not use courtesy titles of respect when referring to blacks, for example, Mr., Mrs., Miss, Sir, or Ma'am. Instead, blacks were called by their first names. Blacks had to use courtesy titles when referring to whites, however, and were not allowed to call them by their first names. If a black person rode in a car driven by a white person, the black person sat in the back seat. Boy, these white people are stupid. It makes you look like a... <laughs> mm. Anyway, um, white motorists had the right of way at all intersections. I love that. Isn't that great? I would have sucked back then. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell if he's white or black. Do I go? Steve <laughs> <laughs> so would have caused the traffic. <laughs> traffic jam. 
<laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. Um, wrote up a sampling of laws during the Jim Crow era. So no colored barber could serve as a barber. This was actually the law. White girls or women, couldn't touch them. Here's a good one, blind wards. The board of trustees shall maintain a separate building on separate ground for the admission, care, instruction, and support of all black persons of the colored or black race. They can't even see each other. Yeah, How crazy is that? Burial. The, okay. An officer in charge shall not bury or allow to be buried any colored persons upon ground set apart or used for the burial of white persons. We'll get back to this when we talk about where George ended up. Buses. I think we're all aware of this one. All passenger stations in the state operated by any motor transportation company shall have separate waiting rooms or space, separate ticket windows for the white and colored races. Because we know that black people had to sit the back of the bus, so forth and so on. And education, the schools for white children and the schools for Negro children shall be conducted separately. This is pretty much all of the, the this list goes on and on. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. You get the idea. Um, blacks were second class citizens, not equal to whites, not really welcome. And they were oppressed. This was apartheid. So, in such an atmosphere of hatred and fear, on June 16, 1944, George Stinney walked into the execution chamber at the South Carolina State Penitentiary in Columbia with a Bible tucked under his arm for comfort. Weighing in at just 95 pounds, he was dressed in a loose-fitting striped jumpsuit, strapped into an adult-sized electric chair, he was so small that the state electrician struggled to adjust an electrode to his right leg. A mask that was too big for him was placed over his face. He was whimpering, this is according to witnesses, as a strap from the chair was placed over his mouth by one of the officers. This caused George to start crying even more. A mask was placed over his face, as I said, which did not fit him, he was so small, and he just continued to sob. 500 volts of electricity was sent through his tiny five foot, one inch frame, causing the mask to slip off his face. His eyes were open, tears were streaming down his cheeks, saliva dripping out of his mouth. Then 1900 volts of electricity were then sent throughout his tiny frame. His scalp was burned, foam had formed around his mouth, his teeth were smoking, he had one eye missing. 2,400 volts of electricity then had been pumped through this child's body, and he was now dead. Was there any account of anybody there who had maybe like a problem with this, or were they all just like jeering and, and into it? I did not encounter, other than the fact that this came from witnesses, anything one way or the other. I, I don't know how you could sit there and watch something like this. I really am. Um, but then again... I mean, it's like a, once something like that can become a cultural norm, it's, um, you know, you talk about things like Kristallnacht, and, you know, the South had routine incidents that 
were similar, although they weren't as widespread as Kristallnacht was in Germany. True. But they did very similar things. They would go and destroy the black areas over, you know, over the smallest things, you know, a black person talking to a white female, and they'd go basically destroy the entire neighborhood. You know, and yeah, so you had Jim Crow laws in the United States yeah. and, and in Germany during the Nazi era, you had Jew laws, yeah, which basically did the same thing to Jews that was done to blacks. And Jews were killed and put in concentration camps, and we all know those stories too. Um, I've heard they're all fake. So, in the span of just 83 <laughs> days. I'm sorry, I missed that remark. Steve said that he heard that it, that's fake news. Yeah, probably from Fox. Yeah. <laughs> um, Steve, is... you're not allowed to do a Holocaust denial. <laughs> oh, if you want to, I... No. I no. <laughs> He's kidding. Um, in a span of just 83 days, the boy had been charged with murder, tried, convicted, and executed by the state. How efficient. Wow, yeah. New evidence in the court hearing in January of 2014 included testimony by Stinney's siblings that he was with them at the time of the murders. In addition, an affidavit was introduced from the Reverend Francis Bacon, who found the girls, pulled them from the water-filled ditch. In his statement, he recalls there was not much blood in or around the ditch, suggesting they may have been killed elsewhere and moved. Wilford Johnny Hunter, who was in prison with Stinney, testified that the teenager told him he had been made to confess, always maintained his innocence, and poor George Stinney never really thought they were going to execute him. How could they do that? He didn't do it. That was his frame of mind. Sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Heard this story before. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Since Stinney's exoneration, George Burke Jr., who was the son of a wealthy white businessman, George Burke Sr., had been the subject of speculation as a possible suspect for the murders. Burke Sr. conducted an initial search for the girls and was the owner of the territory behind Greenhill Baptist Church, where the girls' bodies were found. He was also the foreman of the grand jury at Stinney's trial, and he was everywhere, according to newspaper accounts. Burke Jr. died at the age of 29 in 1947. Burke Jr.'s son, Wayne Burke, had reportedly admitted that he'd been told that his father picked the girls up in his truck prior to them going missing, offering to help them pick flowers. It was discovered that the place the girls' bodies uh, were found, as I said earlier, was likely not the place they'd been murdered, at the time, George only weighed 90 pounds. There was no way a black male of that weight and size could have dragged two white female bodies around in broad daylight due to both lack of strength and the fact it wouldn't have gone unnoticed. How could he have fought two girls who were basically about the same size as he was? The murder weapon that was actually used was much bigger and heavier than the railroad pick that was said to have been used. It was so big and so large that there was no way George could have even been able to pick it up. George Burke Sr. was also all over this case, as I said. From start to finish, he made sure Stinney was convicted no matter what. According to the papers, as I said earlier, he was everywhere. 
There were even talks of a deathbed confession from the white man who was rumored to be originally involved in the murders. His family had confirmed the deathbed confession. Members of the family who were on the initial coroner's inquest jury and had recommended George Stinney be prosecuted. So, it's 2014. George Stinney Jr. <coughs> is being exonerated in South Carolina. This is 70 years after. He became the youngest person executed in the United States in the 1900s. A judge ruled he was denied fundamental due process. Imagine. It took Judge Mueller, Mulin, excuse me, nearly four times as long to issue her ruling as it took in 1944 to go from arrest to execution. The judge wrote, I don't have a murder weapon, I don't have bloody clothes, I don't have a written confession, I have nothing. We don't know whether or not he did it, but that wasn't the issue. It was whether or not his constitutional rights were preserved, and they weren't, and that was clear. And the more I got into it, the more I saw how obvious and blatant it was that he wasn't afforded his constitutional protections. The Manning Times noted that in her decision, uh, Mullen granted a writ of coram nobis, a rare legal doctrine held over from English law that corrects errors of fact when no other remedy is available for the applicant. Bolstered by a key ally and local historian and school board member, George Friesen, family members have insisted that they didn't want Stinney to be pardoned for a crime they believe he did not commit. There's a difference. A pardon is forgiving someone for something they did, George Stinney's yes. niece said. That wasn't an option for my mother, my aunt, or my uncle. We weren't asking forgiveness. Not at all. Many said the angel of irony was present when George was executed. Maybe even God was there. You know I like to pick on God. Mm -hmm. You remember that Bible he had under his arm that George carried into the execution chamber to comfort him? George was so small that they had to have him sit on that Bible so they could execute him. A booster chair, if you will. The artist Jay René, who presented an exhibit memorializing George Stinney, entitled The Electric Chair, is on display at the University Place Gallery in downtown Florence as part of the Jamestown Foundation's No Place Like Home exhibit. Well, that's ironic. The artist said, it, it just touched me and people need to know this story. Not just here in South Carolina, but also nationally. It should be one of our history pieces. You know, this piece should teach us something moving forward. I wanted people to know this story because I was devastated that he was 14 years old, he didn't have a voice, so I wanted this piece to basically give him a voice. George Stinney Jr. was initially buried um, in an unmarked grave in, in South Carolina. It might interest you to know that he was moved to a Baptist cemetery in Alberta, Canada, and there he now resides. Wow. <coughs> so in closing, God bless George Stinney Jr., and may God forgive us. That's it. Oh, that's it. All right.
course, what's going on nowadays? They're, they're, they want to ban critical race theory teaching. Yeah, which is in school. In, it isn't even being taught. What? And it should be. <laughs> what is critical race theory? It is an evaluation of the influence of race and law. Um, institution. Yeah, it's, it's, an it's institution. basically, yeah. It's, it's considered a about, graduate or postgraduate course. Yeah. They don't even teach it in K-12. It's an academic approach. I actually took some notes on it here. And the racial disparities found in society, it's one branch of critical legal theory and started out in law schools in the 1960s, right? Critical theory is an approach to looking at social problems and argues that many of these are created by the social structures of society. It is not black history. It's not an ethnic history. But... The right wing right now is all up in arms and getting getting uh, conservative parents to go to school board meetings because they're attacking black history as if it were this critical race theory. And that's what's going on now. You know, when somebody says that I'm a patriot and then they say I don't want my schools being taught my nation's history, they're not a patriot. Right. Um, you, you have to accept that, you know, as... as much as we can love our country, that does not mean we ignore its flaws and the history and the current flaws that it currently has. Um, you know, doing that is not loving your country. It's ignoring the truth. Right. Um, and if you have to ignore that in order to respect or love your country, you've mm. got, um, you, you, what you have is the opposite of patriotism. I mean, when you think about like certain types of infatuation, you can infatuate with somebody because they're physically attractive, maybe, and completely ignore what a douchebag they might be. Um, and that's not love. So, yeah. Yeah. This is why um, I think people like Donald Trump are so dangerous, too, right? Yes. Because when he was calling COVID, for example, the Chinese flu, people mm -hmm. were attacking Asians everywhere. Yeah. And I know, like, um, the Singapore and Lemonster almost closed down because they were being attacked by the community for this COVID thing, which obviously an Asian family living in Lemonster had nothing to do with the creation or the spread of COVID. Um, but that was sort of what Donald Trump was saying sure. and what people were willing to believe, right? And willing to adhere to. Yeah. That's what's scary to me about like these Jim Crow laws and stuff like that or like when Craig was asking, did anybody say anything during this execution? Like this is, people like they form this hatred mind. They're just waiting know? for a leader to excite them. So it, it, during Reconstruction, right after the Civil War, it wasn't like this. Blacks were actually elected to office. They actually gained full rights. But during the Grant administration, in the deal he was making with the, the Southern Democrats who were trying to come into power again, um, he backed off federal troops. He pulled them out of the South, and this is what happened, Jim Crow. And they had all kinds of religious and other justifications for it. It's one of the reasons I love religion, because they well, justify any heinous thing. Yeah. I'm a, but that's what I'm saying. I guess it can happen. It can happen really fast. Yeah, it can. And, you know, you, you take um, Germany in the 1920s, and, you know, um, it really only took, um, basically, Hitler a decade 
um, to basically come to full power in Germany. Yeah. Now, when you think about who Hitler was, who the people around him were, they were really a circle of lunatics and losers. I mean, this was not, you know, a what you would think of as like a well-operated oiled machine. Yes, he had met somebody <clears throat> named Dietrich Erhardt who had some <clears throat> finances behind him. He met a man by the name of Ernst Röhm, who was actually gay, um, mm -hmm. who uh, had access to firearms. Um, but for the most part, this was a, a group of street thugs that yeah. took over not only their own country, they took over most of Europe within a few decades. Well, this is why also studying history is so important in this critical race theory, you know, getting rid of it at schools, right? It's because we have to understand as, as a humanity how we were responsible for Hitler coming into power, mm -hmm. right? Because we, after the First World War, we really didn't give Germany... The Treaty of Versailles. Yeah, like it, it gave Germany no no choice, right? Like, mm -hmm. So Germany had to do something about the state that they were put into as a result of that, and that's where Hitler, people like Hitler are born. And like the same thing with Trump. Like how does somebody like Trump you know, racist, misogynist, okay with sexually assaulting women and happy to talk about it, mm -hmm. comes into power and people still want to follow him. A big know? part of Hitler's movement was something he called and he wrote about the big lie. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. The big lie. And they, the cynical belief was if you keep repeating the big lie, you'll get enough people to believe it. You can read it in Mein Kampf, which Hitler wrote while in prison. Um, and it was a big part of Goebbels' propaganda. Uh, Goebbels was his propaganda minister. Um, so yeah, we see a lot of parallels. I mean, it would be hard not to. And there's always going to be a group of people in any country just dying, waiting for somebody like a Hitler or a Trump. Or, and they'll respond. And we saw that. Yeah. We saw that, and it's not over. Unfortunately, no. Really, it's no. just getting started. I'm afraid it's not over. Not if my reading of history is correct. They're not done. Yeah, I think though the challenge is in teaching our youth. Um, thinking about when we went to Gettysburg with um, our family and Nessa, our daughter and her boyfriend Armando, um, who are were a mixed race couple, I guess to call them something. Um, when we were walking the Getty that up the hill, you know, where the battle was, I found it very moving. I was like, yeah. you can feel that history there. And for me, that was really um, profound. But those two were like bored. They were like, oh, I have to walk so far. And I said to them, if it, if it wasn't for the people who gave their lives on this very hill, you two would not be a thing. But it's like, they kind of don't get it. You know what I mean? Like when too they were, far separated. they were probably 16 or 17. Yeah. Too and the far schools separated. don't, nowadays and they the don't schools push, don't teach it. Yeah. yeah civics, exactly. no. They yeah, have they, no clue. They really need to teach. Well, you know how many people, even in my generation, think that whites are actually more oppressed than any other race in history. I know. I know. It's the most sometimes. absurd thing on earth. It's like, yeah, the blacks, they got the cool seats on the bus. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. No, that's actually not what was going on, you morons. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, it, it, it really is, you know, one of those things where, like, you know, if Walmart puts up a sign that says, Happy Holidays, um, they take it as their anti-religion. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Every time Starbucks puts out a cup 
Yeah, right, it's right. like, okay, well, actually, holidays does include Christmas. So they're, they are w- wishing you a happy Christmas. Yeah, they're they're wishing Jewish people a nice Hanukkah, too, and that's fine. And that should be fine if you're Christian. Yeah. And happy Kwanzaa. Like, there's yeah. too many to put on one well, cup. Well, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the other thing, too, um, that people... I wish people would learn more about is the cycle of poverty that we force mm-hmm. these people to continue to live yeah. in, right? So, like, the projects and things like that where we, we keep people poor. We don't give them options, um, mm-hmm. and it tends to be largely minority communities. It's not, you know, us white people in the suburbs with our Teslas and our whatever. <laughs> Do you know what the Trumps were found guilty of doing in real estate in New York? Yeah, they were discriminating against the... They were rigging the system so black people couldn't move yeah. into certain areas and buildings. and They are found guilty of it. Well, we... They were fined for it. We do it um, as a society, and we don't mm. even realize that we do it. And uh, one of the things I know when I was, I think, in my master's program, I was learning about Starbucks and um, how they were deliberately building new Starbucks restaurants in these projects, not because you know they thought projects, people living in projects could afford $4 coffees, but to create more job opportunities. And Starbucks also does full tuition reimbursement for every one of their employees, right? So they were like trying to find a way to end the cycle of poverty. And I mean, they got a lot of criticism for that, but I feel like if people don't understand how we keep these, we keep people down, right? Mm -hmm. Then these Jim Crow laws or whatever, they're gonna keep emerging because we keep that separation between us. We, we, We remain giving ourselves the ability to say, we're better than those people because we don't live in projects, because we don't, you know, we aren't poor because we are educated because we go to college and stuff, but we're not giving those people an opportunity to do it. We're not treating them fairly. Yeah, see, I'm old enough, 70, um, to, as I said earlier, to see the vestiges of Jim Crow in, in Texas, especially. Um, there were areas in Houston, they called them, if you pardon the expression, nigger town. And they were awful. If you traveled through the South in the 60s, as I had occasion to do as a kid, um, you saw these shacks, you know, these sharecropper shacks. It, it would have astonished most people. It would have, you know, who could live in that? Right. Newspaper was a wallpaper, covered the windows. And yet, in those deeply Christian communities, that was just fucking fine. Yeah. Don't get me started. Yeah, we saw that in Nashville, too, one of those shacks. Yeah, Yeah, like this huge house, and then on it was a shack where they had, like, 15 people living, and it was maybe the size of this room, and it was all newspapered. So they gave you a little plot of land. You were a sharecropper, which meant most of the crop went to guess who? The white owner of the the plantation or whatever, and just barely enough to feed your family or to stay alive you kept and at any time they could throw you off that land for any reason and they often did as they did with George Stinney's parents they were in a company home which was another thing they used to do back in those days but so for a person like a white person like myself in my age to think oh I got beyond this now oh wonderful I can die and it's all coming back I never really left. Think about 
in your community, if you're white, what would the reaction be if you had to stand in line to vote for four or five hours? Yeah. Um, because that's the norm in a lot of African-American communities. And not only do they do that, what they'll often do is they, they will t close down a polling site and then open another one and say maybe it's only a mile away. However, if you look at city bus lines, it's not just you have to go a mile. You'd have to take the bus back into the center of the city and then take the bus back out, you know, and that could be another two or three hours out of your day. So if you're, you know, have any type of physical disability or you don't have your own car because you live in the city or you take a city like Miami, which is actually much larger in area than just, you know, when you look at Boston, it's small, but when you look at a city like Miami, it's several miles, mm -hmm. um, you know, they do that all the time to stop black people from voting. I mean, it's not by mistake that the only places where you hear about these four or five hour lines to vote are happen to be in black area, um, black populated areas, because there are white populated areas. Mm -hmm. You know, Gardner has a pretty large population, but we have several voting locations. Right. So I think it took me and Terry maybe five minutes to vote mm -hmm. uh, in the last... Line. And now we got mail-in voting. See, that's killing the right wing now. And we need mail-in everywhere. And mail-in is actually more secure because you get a ballot sent to you through the mail. The um, envelope, and often the privacy envelope, depending on the state, has a barcode on it. So you cannot forge the actual voter. It's actually... Um, in fact, there are some states that are saying, well... We could have a voter ID by having you bring in a utility bill. Well, that's the same logic as saying, send us a mail-in ballot. Yeah. You know, um, you know, um, and the thing about voter ID, if you want a voter ID, the government has to pay for it. The Constitution prohibits any type of poll tax or fee-for-service required for voting. It's illegal. It's that came out of Jim Crow, too. Yeah. That was a reaction to Jim Crow's yeah. laws. Yeah. Well, yeah, they tax it, tax you at the polls, and, of course, the blacks didn't have the money to pay nope. the taxes. So then they, the Constitution was amended. We said no poll taxes. But there was a Supreme Court case that actually said any fee for any service required to vote. Because what they did was they, okay, it's not a tax, it's a fee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like a processing fee for your ballot. <laughs> Well, not just that. I mean, we live in a country where George Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin sure. in cold blood, is not in jail, and is selling memorabilia from the crime on eBay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's where we live. And he has an eager audience. Yeah. <laughs> and there are people who are like, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. And they're bidding. Like, I don't. What's he selling? We've, I think he was selling, like, Steve? the gun. And he also sold, he would draw you uh, a Confederate um, flag on some sort of canvas. Um, he apparently thinks he's an artist. Um, so. Yeah, but he's selling stuff like that. He's so full That's of regret weird. for murdering that. He shot that kid in cold blood. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and he's full of regret for beating his girlfriend and <laughs> or was, I actually think it was his wife at the time. The one that put up with him being, you know, locked up for so long because um, of his own decisions, and so he gets out of jail, 
and I forget what they were having an argument about, but he beat the living hell out of her. Yeah. yeah. So oh, he's a he's a. A lot of these right wing heroes are really something else. Yeah. Yeah. So the gun he sold, um, according to what article, uh, the Guardian. Um, Zimmerman shot and killed. He so, sold the gun that he used to shoot and kill Trayvon Martin for one hundred thirty-eight thousand nine hundred dollars. Someone wow. was willing what to pay deal. for that. What a bargain! That's insane. That's, That's disgusting. That is so sad. <laughs> it's like, but it would never occur to him that it was sick. Well, because yeah. he is sick. Yeah. But, but this is this is other people, you know. Mm-hmm. Like they're out what, there. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at how Fox reported on that stuff. You yeah. know, they made Trayvon Martin the criminal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, they even had like his text messages at one point. He was having wrestling with one of his friends. You know, and he was texting uh, somebody saying, "Hey, you know, he won round one. Now we're on to round two. They were wrestling. You know how many teenage boys wrestle? Yeah. I wrestled as a teenage mm-hmm. boy. You know." And sure, we would brag about who won or who lost. Yeah, of we course. do that all And the we time. weren't hurting each other. We were just wrestling. Right. You know? But you know, he beat <clears throat> poor Zimmerman with Skittles. You understand that. I mean, we mustn't lose sight of that. True. Took that bag of Skittles and just beat him with it. I remember as a kid, a friend and I would be out in the front lawn, get some boxing gloves on, and we'd go at it. And then there'd be cars stopping. Are you guys okay? <laughs> well, if you were black, you'd been shot. Yeah. But e- even if, um, was it Trayvon? Mm-hmm. Even if he was a really bad guy and whatever, it's still weird to, you know, shoot a guy and then sell the gun. <laughs> it's really weird. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that's why it's so important <clears throat> for education, right, on Jim Crow laws. Because look at what Trump did. It inspired violence against Asian Americans or Asians in general. Yeah. And there are so many people who don't, maybe they don't even realize that that happened. <clears throat> like, I knew about it, and it made me sick. But um, even, you know, you guys, like, I think that was news. Yeah, it was a I mean? great museum in D.C. that we went to. Um, oh, the African American yeah, Museum. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was. No, you know, I haven't seen. I'd love to see that, but I. That was really. Plan at least a day. Yeah. It was huge. It was Because I think it we was... only went through like three floors. We didn't even get up to the Martin Luther King floor. Yeah. It took. It was wow. huge. You think of the courage of the people that in the '60s who fought back against that system. It cost yeah. some of them their lives. Nana had a friend, you know, our beloved Nana, who was a unitary minister who was beat to death down there, being part of that freedom riding. Yeah. You know. But yeah. anyway, yeah. And Black Lives Matter, we're going through it mm-hmm. again. Yes. You know? Yeah. And you're getting a lot of the same feedback from the extreme right. I don't know if there is the extreme right, I think they're just the right. <laughs> like, well, I mean, there's, you know, and it's unfortunate because. You know, um, the Mitt Romney-type Republicans of the world are becoming very far and few between. You know, you have Cheney. And, you know, as much as I don't necessarily like those, um, the normal right either that much, it is important that we have varying points of view in government. You can't have one party rule. Um, You really can't. You need... You need checks and balances to have effective government. 
Um, you really yeah. do. Otherwise, you get corruption. This so. is true. I voted Republican. Does that shock you? <clears throat> Nothing about you shocks me, Dad. I voted for Governor Sergeant Brooke, Edward Brooke. But you vote for vote. Baker, but I have a favorable approval of him. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there are the, there is, like you said, far and few between now. But there used to be a lot more moderate Republicans. They had the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party. And if you look at, like, Eisenhower's platform that he mm -hmm. ran on, it reads like a liberal Democrat nowadays. Yeah. He was for unions and, and you know, yeah. integration. It was just, uh, well, yeah, things have kind of gone... Um, Warren was a Republican. Hillary Clinton War was a Republican. The, yeah. the, from the Warren court, you know. That's true, yeah. He was Republican, um, yeah. so. Hillary Clinton was the president yeah. of the Young Republicans Club in her <laughs> college. And Martin Luther King was a Republican, so the, I mean, the things did change, but I, I mean, you know, the, but, things you know. Things change, but it doesn't seem that it's changed that much from, I mean, hopefully there'll never be another George yeah. getting electrocuted but well anyway i guess that wraps that up so next week though we will be having a special guest lou, lou gendron who also does a podcast I'll, I'll have to ask him what the name of his podcast is yeah, um, yeah and we'll be actually covering the um Brian, Brian Laundry, yeah. Gabby, what is her? Gabby Petito. Gabby Petito case. Oh, that's that was a recent one, right? All over very the news. Recent, yeah. Very tragic. Um, yeah. So. And I got some stuff a to say about the cops there. in this case, too. Oh, so. yes. More <laughs> fun cops. Yeah. Uh, fist bumping. Oh, my God. Women weren't so irritating. Yeah. yeah. I have to so deal with that for my wife, too. I can go traveling with someone. <laughs> and on that note see you next week <laughs> thank you for listening to us on this episode of cocktails mocktails and crime be sure to subscribe in your favorite app so you don't miss an episode you can also send us an email to cocktails mocktails and crime at gmail.com or follow us on facebook or instagram at cocktails mocktails and crime or twitter at cm crime one see you all next week <laughs>